Well, good morning, friends. Hey, go ahead and uh, fist bump someone around you. Welcome them to church this morning. Well, good to see everyone here from those of you that uh, are first-time guests to those that call Radiant Life their church home. It's good to see everyone. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we have been on a series together journeying through what's called Puzzled, Piecing It All Together, how 66 letters make up God's Word, what we call Scripture or the Bible. How does it all play out? How do all these stories make one story? And we're going to jump in this week. If you've always missed a Sunday, you can jump online at theradiantlife.church and go to the media page and you'll be able to check up and, and stay with us that way. But we are in part three and we have a ton of ground to cover this morning. A ton of ground. So if you're a note taker, you're going to get hand cramps, all right? Just tell you that right now. We need to cover from Genesis 15 to Exodus chapter 25. It's a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to give you a lot of information. We'll take breathers, but we have to get to this core idea, what God is up to in the midst of his people, but we got to get there. All right, you ready? You ready? Remember, we'll take breaks, all right? And here's a, here's a gift. I have a gift for you. We'll wrap this series up in three weeks. I will give you all a complete timeline of what we've been discussing. A little six inches by 11 inch, awesome, cool little thing for you to take home so you have that, okay? Because a lot of people are like, man, I'm taking so many notes and I'm trying to piece it all together still. This timeline will help you. So in three weeks, you're going to get that from us. Merry Christmas from us to you, all right? But that doesn't mean you get to skip all the weeks up to that week, okay? We're like, hey, I don't need to hear it. Just come week six and I'll get the timeline. No, stay with us, all right? We're going to journey together. We left last week, if you were here, with Genesis chapter 15, God doing something crazy, a cutting ceremony, making a promise to Abraham. The three promises to Abraham, this guy that God chose to carry his story, his plan for the world. Because in the Garden of Eden back in creation, shalom was shattered. And God says, don't bring sin into my story. Adam and Eve do through disobedience. And shalom is shattered. And God's plan is to restore that, what he created back in Genesis. And he's going to use a guy by the name of Abram. Eventually, he changes his name to Abraham, but he'll use Abram to fulfill that. Last week, we looked at three promises that God says, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a great land, and through you, there will become a great Messiah. You'll be a blessing to all people. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis chapter 18, this is so key, we have to get this, because you'll see it being played out through all of Scripture and into Jesus' time. Is Genesis 18, God's going to tell the people how Abram is going to do this. Genesis 18, verse 19, or yes, verse 19. For I have chosen him, referring to Abram or Abraham, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after me to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is what, friends? Right and what? 
just. Your translations may say righteousness and justice. It's all the same. That's what that means. So how is Abram going to do this? How is he going to bring about God's plan? By doing what is right, righteousness, and just, justice, so that the Lord will bring about for Abram what he has promised him. Now we will see righteousness and justice played throughout the entire biblical narrative. It will be there from the kings, and we'll even touch more on this next week, into Jesus' life, and then into the, Paul writes in the Galatians about righteousness and justice, and it even talks in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, about righteousness and justice. We have to understand this. So my question is, then what does it mean? We've got to understand it. The word just here is justice. It's the Hebrew word mishpah. Let me hear you say mishpah. It's a fun word to say, and it means righting what is wrong. It's like legal justice, what we have today. They just try to right the wrong. It's justice. Now, the key here is what is righteousness. The Hebrew word there is literally meaning that the oppressed have a say in the world. The least of these have a say. They have a right to the justice system as well. Don't read socialism into it. It's not socialism. God is just trying to say that the least of these have a voice because he knows humanity. The more power, the more will suppress the least of these. And God is saying it's through righteousness and justice, Abraham, you will bring about my purpose and plan for humanity. So Abraham goes on and he, he has God's promises by the age of 75. At 75, him and his wife, Sarah, Sarai, Abram and Sarah, at the age of 100, Abraham finally gets his first son by the name of Isaac. Now, can you imagine being 100 and giving birth? Like, forget Abraham. I want to know about Sarah giving birth that late in age, right? Like, I'm, I can't wait to get to heaven and ask them what that looks like parenting a child at the age of 100, right? Awesome. But maybe some of you, whether you grew up in church or not, heard the story of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham going to sacrifice his son Isaac, and that is an entire different teaching with so much awesome stuff in it. That's for another time. You'll just continue to come to Radiant Life and you'll get to that teaching, okay? So Isaac, their son, finally a promise, right? Great nation, and Abram's like, dude, I'm childless. How is this going to happen? Finally, at the age of 100, he gets a son. He marries a woman by the name of Rebecca. The two of them together have two kids, Esau and Jacob. Esau is like a hairy Sasquatch, right? The Bible says he's covered in hair. He's a hairy, he's a dude's dude. He's a hunter. He's just, he got man hair everywhere, right? That's Esau, older brother. Jacob's like mama's boy, right? He, he stays home while Esau's out in the woods and everything. And Jacob, we're told in Genesis that he has a moment wrestling with God, which we believe is literally Jesus before he comes to earth and gets his name changed to Israel, now we understand where are they getting their name from. Now, Jacob marries sisters, two sisters by the name of Rachel and Leah. They have servants or midwives or whatever you want to call them, and they can't have kids with Jacob for whatever Rachel and Leah just can't. And so each of them says, Jacob, you can have a 
child with one of our maidservants. So there's Rachel and Leah, their sisters. He marries them. Zilpah and Bilhah are the two maidservants he has kids with as well. Making sense. Are we tracking? A lot of info. Are we tracking? Because I'm getting a lot of blank stares at me. All right. We're good so far? Breather, you need a, need a quick cup of coffee? All right. I'm on my fourth one already. I'm going, man. Woo! Here we go. So he's got two wives, two concubines. He starts reproducing like a rabbit, okay? And he ends up with 12 sons. I mean, he just is going and going. I mean, you can't even get him into one vehicle. He has so many sons. I mean, you can't put that all in one vehicle. But his 12 sons are known as the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 men of Israel. This is where we get all that tribe language from. It's based on Jacob's 12 sons. Now, Jacob just doesn't have 12 sons. He has a daughter. We don't get a lot of information on the daughter, so let's talk about the daughter. There's his daughter, and her name is Dinah, all right? There, we gave due to the daughter. We got to go back to the guys, okay, because the guys are so important. One special one, one special son by the name of Joseph. And whether you're a believer or not, you probably heard of this guy, the guy with a cool colored coat right? That everything happens. He is the favorite child to Jacob, to Israel. You know, you, you, may have, you may be that favorite child. Is there any of you that would admit, I'm mom and dad's favorite. I know I am, right? So you can relate to Jacob. The rest of you that aren't favorites, you got to be one of the sons, all right? Because they get mad at Jacob. Jacob, you're the spoiled brat. You get everything. So they want to get rid of him. So they devise a plan to kill him. And in fact, one of the older brothers is smart enough and says, we probably shouldn't kill our own brother. It would devastate dad. So instead, they take him out, throw him in a cistern, which is just an empty well, and be like, forget it, we're selling you. A caravan makes its way. The Midianites are in there. And they're like, hey, right here, take our little brother away. All right, deal, sold him. Sold your own brother the caravan now that has Joseph is making its way to Egypt to make trades in Egypt. In Egypt, they're like, we don't need this guy named Joseph. Hey, Egyptians, you want him? Sure. They sold Joseph into Egypt. Now, through a series of events, Joseph rises from slave to second in command only under Pharaoh in the entire country of Egypt. And then through a series of events that's going to take place after, a massive famine hits the land where Joseph's brothers and sister and mom and dad are living. Dad's smart and says, hey, I'm getting old. Sons, go to Egypt. They have the wealth. Get food there and come back. The 11 sons, they go to Egypt and they realize, oh my goodness, it's our brother. Joseph. And through other things that happen, Joseph ends up moving his entire family, about 70 in total, to Egypt, out of the land of Canaan to Egypt. And then in Genesis chapter 47, this is what we're told. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. We now know why the famines in the land 
Joseph moves his entire family. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased in number greatly. So they're like, we saw dad produce like rabbits. We're all going to reproduce like rabbits as well. And their numbers, and they become a nation within Egypt. And that's how Genesis ends. The entire nation of Israel is now in Egypt. Well, issue arrives. In the beginning of Exodus, the next book, Exodus, we are told that Joseph dies. Pharaoh dies. A new Pharaoh will get on the throne and realize, whoa, there's a great number of these people that are not like us, and he's afraid of a revolt. He goes, we have to enslave these people. And in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, it says, So they put slave masters over them to what, friends? Oppress them with forced labor. And now you enter 400 years of the Israelites being slave into Egypt. And God always hears the cry of the oppressed. And they cry out to God, and God says, I hear them. And God will raise up a leader by the name of Moses. And if I was good friends with Moses, I'd call him Mo. All right? So we're going to call him Mo for now. And Mo grows up. He's a great leader, by the way. If you want to study leadership, study Moses. Read Exodus. And if you said, Ryan, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Exodus. No Exodus. You'll know the whole story of Jesus and why he came. No Exodus. It's an awesome book. So Moses comes on the scene. Moses says through a series of events, too, that these 10 plagues come to Pharaoh, and through Moses' leadership, he gets them out of slavery, crosses the Red Sea. Literally, it translates the Sea of Reeds. We're not sure exactly where they cross. We know they cross somewhere. Is it the Red Sea? There's a bunch of lakes on the north side as well. Did they cross there? We're not sure. But through Moses' leadership, he leads the Israelites out of Egypt, crosses the sea, and then they reach dry land. The Egyptian army is on their heels, and as soon as they get across, the Egyptian army's crossing, and the waters come caving down. And then they get on the other side, and the Israelites, yes, God, you are our God. You delivered us from slavery. And God says, oh yeah? Let's go have a talk about this now. So now the Israelites go to a place called Mount Sinai. And here's a little picture of their journey, perhaps. Here's Egypt. This is where Goshen is, super fertile. This is where the Nile River. If you ever see satellite images, just look for green. You know there's uh, rivers there, okay? So the Nile River, this is all the Nile, and it branches off into all these fingers known as the Nile Delta. Goshen is right there. They get out of there, and when they cross over, God says, meet me at Mount Sinai. I'm going to meet you at Mount Sinai. There, we're going to talk about our relationship. So they get down to this region down here where Mount Sinai is, and they have a little talk with one another. God needs to make sure that if you're my plan to restore everything that was broken in the garden, all the shalom, that perfect wholeness, that perfect well-being, you're my plan. I need to make sure you act like me to people. Because eventually, they're going to make their way here, the promised land, present-day Israel. And this land is so key. All ancient travel by land 
came through this peninsula through Israel. And God is saying, I am going to put you at a major highway in the ancient world. You have to act like me to all the peoples. If you're going into Greece and Turkey and Rome in land, you have to travel here to get to Egypt. And if you're in Egypt and you're sending caravans over to Persia or over into Greece, you would have to come through Israel. And God's saying, it's there, you will be my hands and feet. And in Exodus chapter 19, something crucial happens when God's saying, I need you to behave like me. Now that you're free, act like me. And here's what he says. And if you've seen, you've seen this before. And you will be for me, can we read those four words? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you were here with us this summer, we went over uh, the Ten Commandments. We did an 11-week series on the Ten Commandments. And we talked about this particular issue. But if you weren't, I just need you three gentlemen. Uh, Alan, yes, and yes, will you come up just real quick? I'm not going to embarrass you, I promise um, these handsome young lads, there you go, who wants to be here? There we go, all right. So real quick, if you've been around, you've seen this illustration, but if you haven't, I need to explain it. The kingdom of priests, they just got out of Egypt 400 years, and they know temple priest language, because there are over 1,500 Egyptian gods. 400 years, they've been indoctrinated into that. What happens in the system is this is the god, you're in a temple. This is the God. Don't let this go to your head, by the way, okay? This is the God. This is the priest. This is the worshiper. You're going to follow me over here. Everyday life, you're doing your thing, and you need to go meet with the God. You need to go just worship him, make a sacrifice. You would come then to the temple, and you would meet with the priest. The priest was the representation of the God to the world. So when the worshiper came and met with the priest in the temple, it was like the worshiper was meeting with the God because the priest was the hands and feet of the God or goddess. And they get that. And now God's saying, you want to know what this relationship is going to look like? I need to be. You, I need you to be this for me. You got to be the kingdom of priests. Be my hands and feet in the ancient world. Because all traffic is going to go through the territory I'm giving you. And you got to represent me well. So let's talk at Mount Sinai. Does that make sense? We're good? Told you, we're going to get through a lot. We're still not where we've got to be. We're almost there though, all right? Hey, can we thank these young lads for coming up? Hey, I'll get you coffee. Free coffee, there you go. All right, we're there, right? Okay? We understand that. At Mount Sinai, God gives them the Ten Commandments, not just to put them in a box, but to say to be this kingdom of priests. I got to teach you how it is to live like me. So they get the Ten Commandments, and they're at Mount Sinai. And then they make this journey out from Mount, uh, out from Mount Sinai, just into this wilderness, um, or we say desert or wilderness, and they will spend 40 years wandering right here. Now, they're not lost. We say they're wandering. They know how to get back to um, Egypt. This isn't really a long travel span anyways. It took them 40 days to leave Egypt to get down here. They can, they can go back, but God is not allowing them to go in yet because God is saying, you're not the kingdom of priests yet. I still have to work some kinks out of you in order for you to look like me. Now, we're there. 
Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25, if you got your Bible, your tablet, your phone, you version, whatever version electronic you use, Exodus chapter 25, and you can just take a breather, let your hand relax real quick, take a drink of coffee. All right, Exodus chapter 25, here's, here's something, just side note, uh, Genesis begins the book of the Bible, it begins the Bible, Genesis means the beginning Second book of the Bible is Exodus. Exodus means to exit. It makes sense, right? Genesis, the beginning. Exodus, to exit. Where are they exiting from? You guys should be the most knowledgeable people. Where are they exiting from? Egypt, right? Makes sense. So when someone that doesn't know Jesus comes to you and says, what is Genesis? What is Exodus? Ah, I can tell you. All right. Here we go. Exodus chapter 25, God is going to have another conversation with his people. As they're wandering in the desert, God is going to be with them. But they have to create something. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. This is God's words. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will, what friends? I will dwell among them. Verse 9. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings, what's this word? Exactly like the pattern I will show you. What's interesting is God doesn't say, hey, make it similar. Just, just make whatever you want and I'll dwell there, okay? No, God says, hey, make a sanctuary. I'm going to dwell there with you. I'm going to dwell with you. Keyword, dwell with you. And I want you to make exactly what I tell you. Specifications everything. Make it how I tell you. They make it and welcome to what we know as the tabernacle. I was able to visit this site. This is in Timnah, Israel. It's the only replication of the tabernacle in the entire nation of Israel. Now you see it's very rocky. You see the Rocky Mountains. I mean, not the American Rocky Mountains, but you see the, the rocks. <laughs> um, this is the wilderness. A lot of times we look at the Bible and we read there in the wilderness and then the desert, we think sand. There's no sand. The only sand is around water in Israel. It is all rock. And for 40 years, everywhere they move in this area, they have to build and set up the tabernacle. Here's what's interesting. You see that outer fence is made of white linen. The white linen is seven and a half feet tall the whole proximity is 75 feet wide, 150 feet deep. You can probably get two and a half of these on a football field. In the middle, it's here in this tent, is broken into two rooms. The Holy of Holy, when you walk through the first tent, the Holy, of Ho or the holy Place, and then you walk through beyond that, and you have the Holy of Holies. And in this, this is about 15 feet wide, 45 feet tall. Not that big. But that is where God will dwell. And he says, make everything like I tell you to. Exactly. Because I'm going to dwell in your midst. Now my question is, well, why did God make them do this? What are all the furnishings here? What is, what is, what is God doing? Glad you asked. Every man of the household, one male, would come and sacrifice a one-year-old lamb. 
when your sins are heavy and the guilt that you're carrying is heavy on your family, you would make a sacrifice. The lamb has to die. And we're told quickly in the Newer Testament, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no what, friends? So the writer of Hebrews is telling us, you have to have the shedding of blood in order to be forgiven. Welcome to the first stages of the tabernacle that God tells them. At first, you would walk in the male of the household with a one-year-old lamb that was perfect, that was pure, and give it over to the priest. The priest then would take it to the slaughtering table. The man would place his hands on the head of the lamb and confess all sins of not only him but his entire family and confess the guilt that they're carrying. When that is done, the lamb is acting as a substitutional atonement for the forgiveness of sins. The priest will lift the lamb's head and cut its throat. He would then slice up the lamb into many pieces, some they kept for the priest, others they would make their way to the altar of burnt offering. They would walk up this ramp and place the lamb pieces, the perfect pure lamb, inside where there's a burning fire. Then the priest would take the blood that's on him and take the lamb's blood and wipe it on the four corners, the four horns of the altar. And then... After being all bloody, the priest then would make his way to what is in the middle there, which would be the bronze and laver. He would make his way here as blood covered his entire arms. Perhaps he got some on his face, and he makes it here, and he begins to just wash his entire arms and hands and maybe splash them on his face. But imagine all the families sacrificing all the time how much blood there would be in this area. Once that's done, he would make his way back after the brazen um, labor. And they would go into what's known as that place there, the holy place. They would make their way into the first room, and only priests were allowed in that first room. Again, that whole little middle tent is only 15 feet wide, 45, or 45 feet tall, about 45 feet long or, or so. In that holy place, there are three elements that the priests would attend. On one side, you had the lampstand. Seven candles that would be burning always. This would remind the priests that God's light will always shine in darkness. It was a constant reminder. Then you can make your way over to the other side of the holy place. And you would have the table of showbread. There would be 12 pieces of bread made every day on here for the priests to eat. But it was a daily reminder that God is our provider in the midst of this wilderness. Why 12? The 12 tribes of Israel. It was a constant reminder. God is my provider and God's covenant God's promise to Abraham's coming through. God, Abraham, you finally had a son, and now there's 12 tribes of Israel that's going to build this great nation. Everything's here. There's a third element to that first room, the holy place, is you have the altar of incense. 
where a constant fire would be burning. The priest would put incense here, and the smell and the aroma would rise up to the heavens as a pleasing aroma to God, reminding him of how God wants to communicate with us through prayer that God is pleased with our prayers, that that's the way we are to communicate, and they're reminded of that. And then once a year, the high priest, only the high priest, was able to make his way from the holy place to the back room where a curtain would separate the holy place from the holy of holies, and he would make his way there. Historians said they would have bells on the hems of their garment and a rope tied to their ankle in case they died They would stop, the priest out here could stop hearing the bells and they would pull the dead high priest out because you're not allowed to go back there. The high priest once a year would make his way, open the curtains, make his way to this small room, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant stood. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, you would have three items. The rod of Aaron, who was a priest. You had the jar of manna, Oh, the constant reminder that in the wilderness, God was always providing for us. Manna fell through heaven. You know what manna means? What is it? We don't know what manna was. We have no idea what was falling from heaven to feed them. But that would be in here. And guess what else was in here? The Ten Commandments. And the, holy, and the high priest would make his way, and once a year, he would take the lamb's blood and put it over what this part is known as the mercy seat, for the forgiveness and the atonement of the sins for the entire nation of Israel. Now remember in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God said, make for me a sanctuary, and I will dwell there. This mercy seat is where they believed the presence of God was dwelling in the midst of everyone. And only the high priest was allowed to go back here. And once a year, wipe the lamb's blood as an act of forgiveness of sins for every one. The tabernacle. Every time they moved for 40 years, they had to tear that down, set it up. My question was, if they had to tear that up, tear it down, set it up every move, where was everyone else? Where did they stay Glad you asked that question too, all right? Numbers chapter 2. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. What do you think that book's about? Numbers, yeah, Numbers. If you don't like Numbers, don't read that book, all right? No, read it anyways. It's God's Word, okay? Here we go. Numbers chapter 2. It says this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp where? One more time. They're to camp where? Around the tent of meeting, some distance from it. So we're immediately told, there's the tabernacle, and where is everyone else? Where are the 12 tribes of Israel? They are around this thing. So the tabernacle was in the center of their community. Four sides, three tribes on each side. So I pawn a question. Where do we orient God in our lives? Because for the Israelites, for the Hebrew people, God was the center of everything. And every morning you woke up, no matter what side of that tabernacle you were on, but you saw your people all encamped around it. You knew every morning that God was the center of our community and the center of our lives. My question is, where do you orient God in your life? Is he just off center? 
Is he just to the left or to the right? Because we have, we all orient our lives around something or someone. Who is it? Because the source of our life is who we center it on. For some of us, we center it on our families. They're everything to us. For others, it's our kids, our spouse, our nieces and nephews. Maybe it's your career, your finances, your skills, your talents, whatever it is. We center our lives around something. Is it God? Because if not, and you put everything in your source for your life is in humanity, it will crumble. Humanity is broken. We saw it in the garden, and God says everything is shattered and fractured, and I'm going to restore it, but it's broken. But you put God, that firm foundation in the center of your life, you'll be able to withstand any storm. It may not be easy. I don't think anyone likes storms, right? Except we had a great lightning and thunderstorm the other night. That was pretty cool. No one likes storms when they hit our lives. No one likes them. But a lot of people will fall because we realize that God's not in the center of it. Other things are. So where do we orient God in our lives? Which leads me to another question. Do we make space in our lives for God? Because we could say, hey, yes, I want God in the center of my life like the Israelites. I want it there. I'll give you a high five and a fist bump all day long. That is great. But my question is, do you make space for it to happen? Because we're busy. We got Thanksgiving coming up, right? We got meals to prep. We've got a house to clean because Uncle Eddie's coming. We got all that. We're busy. You look at our to-do list and you sit there and say, man, I've got all these kids' events and I got to do this and be here and do that. And then at the end of the day, we put our head on our pillow and we're like, dude, where was God in the midst of it? We let our calendars dictate what's at the center of our lives. And God says, people, my tabernacle is a reminder I'm to be your center. Do you make room for him? Do you make room? My last thing, if I can wrap this up, it would be this. Make Jesus the center of it all. Will you repeat that with me? Make Jesus the center of it all. One more time. Make Jesus the center of it all. Make him everything. Because what I've realized is when Jesus is in the center of our lives, it's easier to love the unlovable. It's easier to forgive people who hurt us when Jesus is at the center because our source and our power comes from what we center our lives on. It's easier to give grace to people that we don't like. I call them EGR, right? Extra grace required people. We all have them, right? Don't point to your neighbor either, okay? We have them in our careers, we have them in our neighborhoods, we have them in our family. But when we're able to center and make Jesus the center, say, God, you got to give me more grace to handle them. Give me mercy because I'm low on mercy. Help me to forgive. Help me to not carry bitterness or resentment because I know my source of power is you because you're at the center of it all. And some of you will still say, well, I, how do you do that? As the praise team makes their way up, I'm going to share with you Three quick things, and we'll wrap it up. Three quick things that I do. Do I do it perfect? Absolutely not. But I try to live this out in my life, and maybe this will spawn something for you. How do we make Jesus the center of it all? Here's the first thing. 
Start with Jesus. Start with who? Start with Jesus. Every morning when my alarm clock goes off, I say to myself, no Facebook, no email. Do I do it all the time? Nope. I mess up. But I want to grab my coffee and give me some Jesus to start the day. Whether it's prayer or I'm in my devotion in God's word for 10, 15 minutes. I don't know what it is. But every day, try to start your day with Jesus. Get alone with him. And then the morning goes on and we get busy in our schedules and our work. Here's the second thing. Stay with Jesus. That may look differently for all of us, but one thing I try to do is I'm constantly reminding myself to be in prayer, and I'm trying to be thankful for three things every day in my life. And that's what I try to do during the day. God, I just want to thank you for the staff at Radiant Life. Just thank you. Even though sometimes we drive each other crazy, but we can have a lot of fun together too. Just thank you so much for them. Be thankful. Stay with Jesus throughout the day. For me, another thing, I love sports talk radio. I have an slight obsession with it, all right? My wife will say, turn that stuff off all the time when I get into the car or a van. It's just, I love it. But sometimes what I realize is I just got to turn that off and be like, Jesus, I need some worship time right now. Let me put in some worship music today. Stay with Jesus. And then my last is end with Jesus. Every night before I go to bed, I, I, I get in bed and I will read God's word again. Am I perfect? Nope. But it's a constant reminder. Start with Jesus, stay with Jesus, end with Jesus. Because I don't want to get off center. Because I know I will crumble in my humanity when I do. I won't love you like I should. I'll be a horrible dad. I'll be a horrible father. I will let my flesh win. But I need to stay centered on Jesus all the time. Start with Jesus, stay with Jesus, end with Jesus. How are we doing? How are we doing with that? It's easy to get derailed. The band's going to play a song first and only. I wanted to really just to worship, worship to it, but allow God to speak into you at the same time. Because is Jesus really your first and only? Why don't you stand and I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to worship on a closing song together. God, I pray for everyone in this room this morning. Because there are so many walks of life that are represented here that it's easy to allow our schedules and busyness just to shut you out and push you off, off center. I pray for everyone here that we would just be able to worship you freely and know, God, that you're working on us, you're working in us and through us that we would really take a self-examination and say, God, are you really at the center of it all? Exactly like the Hebrew people had a daily reminder of the tabernacle. You're there. You're there. Your promises are there. May we be reminded. And may we truly say, you are first and only in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.